Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, Pastor of Mission and Worship here at LNPC. And this episode is a Pillar and Ground Questions episode, where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. Today's episode, we're going to be looking at the question of how to share the gospel in a changing world. Basically, a question of evangelism. Uh, I think most of us as Christians uh, sense or, or know that one of the important parts of the Christian life is sharing the good news. But one of the questions uh, that often comes up as soon as we think about that is, how do you do that? Uh, I think we all have an intuitive sense that at least something has shifted in our world in the last few years in the way we have these types of conversations. And so we're going to take a couple of episodes here on Pillow and Ground to talk through that. Uh, particularly today, we're going to look at uh, this question of a changing world. What exactly has changed uh, that is causing us to ask the question, how now do we share the gospel in our current context? And we're going to be leaning on a book by the name of Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatrow. For those of you who come uh, on Wednesday nights, you may remember that uh, Chad Middlebrooks and I did a Wednesday night elective on this back in the fall of 2022. And so we'll be leaning on some of those notes uh, from that book as we think about this question. Perhaps the place we need to start as we think about uh, evangelism is why do evangelism at all? We think about that word. That can be a churchy word. It simply means sharing the good news, the good news of Jesus. Uh, Why do we need to do it? And perhaps that, for many of you who grew up in the church, that just seems like a really obvious, uh, there's a really obvious answer to that question, uh, because the Bible says so. And of course, that's true. In Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, what's often thought of as the Great Commission, Jesus, as after he's risen from the dead, is uh, preparing to ascend up into heavens, and he gives his disciples uh, their marching orders. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This same theme is picked up throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul there in Romans 10 begins working backwards. We know we want people to be saved. So how does that happen? And he starts working backwards through the process. They have to believe and to believe they have to hear and to hear someone has to preach. And so here we have yet another uh, emphasis on the imperative of sharing the gospel, preaching the good news uh, to everyone that we can. Lastly, in First uh, Peter, just one more example uh, of another text where we see the, uh, the imperative to evangelize. In First Peter 3, 15, Peter writes, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says that we are to always be prepared uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks. And, and that assumes that people will ask, that they will see how we live as followers of Jesus, and they will wonder. In fact, they'll wonder so much that they will actually put the question to us. Why, why do you live the way that you do? Where do you get this hope? And he says that we are always to be prepared to answer that question and to be prepared to answer it in gentleness 
and respect. So the the question, why do evangelism, perhaps is fairly easily dealt with. Uh, the, the Bible says so. But that still raises another question. How do we actually do that? And I think if you're anything like me, this is where most of us get stuck. Because we often, perhaps if you, you grew up in the church, you've uh, maybe learned some ways to share your faith. Uh, perhaps a, a short uh, number of questions or Uh, topics that you can introduce to someone as you talk to them about the gospel or about Jesus. But we have these suspicions that maybe that's not going to work. Is that really going to work? If I'm on an airplane sitting next to someone and the topic comes up, as I go through those questions or uh, four spiritual laws or something like that, is, is that really effective? I think we have this intuitive sense that the gospel presentation methods we've been taught these days, at least, seem to be scratching people where they're not actually itching. Imagine for a moment that uh, you just asked a neighbor, perhaps, or a coworker, if you were to die tonight and God asked, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And your neighbor or coworker responds, oh, actually, you know, I don't, I don't believe in God. I think when you die, you just cease to exist. And then you were to say, well, no, that, that's actually not what happens. But before you could get into your whole spiel, they just respond and say, you know, actually, I just, I disagree. Uh, Agree to disagree. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Many of us would leave that conversation thinking, what just happened? Why is there such a difference between the way that I view the world and the way that my neighbors or coworkers view the world? And this is where Joshua Chatrow, in this book, Telling a Better Story, is really helpful. He argues that what's happening in that moment is that the two of you are living out of different stories. For those of you who have done more study on this, he's talking about uh, what we might call meta-narratives or worldviews. But I like the language of stories because I think that's just simpler to understand. Everyone's living their life based upon some kind of story that makes sense of the world. Everyone has to answer the big questions in life like, Who are we? What is the meaning of life? What's wrong with the world, and is there a way of making it right? Do we have any hope that that could actually happen? Even if they don't know it, everyone is answering those questions out of some framework, some basic story. And so to go back to our evangelism example for a moment, part of our challenge is that for a really long time, we could assume that most people that we knew, most of our neighbors, most of our coworkers, were living out of the same framework that we were. We might have differed on some of the details, but there was a lot of agreement. Listen to this quote from uh, Tim Keller in his, uh, his work, How to Reach the West Again. He says, For centuries, Christians have been able to assume that everyone around them believed in a sacred order, a transcendent, supernatural dimension of reality that was the ground of moral absolutes and promised life after death. All cultures believed in a standard of right and wrong to which human beings were obligated to conform regardless of their feelings. They therefore also believed in the objective, in objective guilt and sin and that the problems of human life are solved when we connect to that sacred order rather than simply live for ourselves. Of course, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and animists disagreed even violently over what that sacred order was and rejected the Christian account of it. But everyone agreed that it existed and that we needed to find a way to touch it. So for many years, we could actually count on our neighbors believing in a higher power, Tim Keller says. That was, they believed in a power that was the source of an objective standard of right and wrong. 
that we needed some connection with that higher power to have hope of, of an afterlife, something that we all agreed existed. But if you've talked to people uh, today, something seems to have changed there. We now have neighbors who believe there is no higher power, or at least we have far more of them than we used to. Some of them believe our universe is the product of random chance. There, there is no afterlife. There is no objective standard of right and wrong. And that's just one of the wildly different stories that they might be living out of. So when you try to share the gospel with them in the way that many of us have been taught to do it, you're offering them a solution to a problem that they don't think they have and a relationship with a God they don't believe exists. If you're anything like me, that disconnect can lead to all sorts of anxieties, all sorts of anxious responses from us. It can cause us to doubt. I mean, is, is what I believe true? They seem so sure that, that it's not can lead to fear. I mean, I don't, in our current context, I I don't want to be labeled as hateful or or intolerant, so maybe I should just keep quiet. For some of us, it can lead to resentment, a frustration that we don't have these shared common values anymore. People are just insane, ruining our culture. Others of us can just become apathetic. They're not going to listen, so why bother? I think those various responses actually explain why many of us have such a hard time with the idea of evangelism. It feels like this impossible uphill climb to get past all of those disconnects. I mean, where do we even start? Joshua Chatterow argues in the book that what we have to do, where we have to start, is by backing the conversation up. We have to help our neighbors see the story that they're living out of, and then we have to tell them a better one. To do that, we have to understand our own story and how to communicate it in a way that they can actually understand. But we also have to understand their story. So we're going to talk in more detail uh, next time about the most common individual stories that our neighbors are living out of. For this episode, what I want to focus on is how did we actually get here? How did we get to this place of so many different stories? Before we can navigate those stories, we have to get our own bearings and understand the context we're living in and how we got here. To understand our present cultural moment, we need to talk a little bit about history. In the book, Chatrow does a great job unpacking some of the big historical cultural shifts that have led us to these last, uh, these last few years. One way to think about and organize history, he writes, uh, and in this case, the history of our culture, is to identify shifts in definitions of foundational concepts like reason, tradition, authority, and belief, or lack thereof, in the divine. For Western culture, historians and philosophers often cite two major shifts, resulting in three distinct periods, the pre-modern, modern, and postmodern eras. So Chachau argues that there have been two major shifts from the, the pre-modern era to the modern, and then from the modern to the postmodern era. And those shifts actually help explain why the landscape seems to look so different to many of us. So just to start with the pre-modern era to kind of get our bearings, you think of kind of most of history lasting roughly until the 1500s and 1600s. And the distinctives of the pre-modern era were that people lived in what we might call an enchanted world. People believed in transcendent beings. They believed in a realm beyond and above nature. They believed in a higher meaning to life. People were often defined by their communities, their their families, their tribes, their religions. And you can imagine there's actually a fair amount of alignment with some of the things that Christianity and, and the Bible would call good. 
people recognized that there was a divine, that there was a transcendent being, that there was a God. There was an emphasis on community, on family, on connection. There was an appreciation for tradition and for religious institutions. And so there was much to affirm in the pre-modern era. There are a lot of things uh, that lined up well with how the Bible describes God creating us uh, to live. But of course, there's also misalignment. Because in the pre-modern era, there wasn't just one idea about transcendence. There were many different ideas. Myths and superstitions were often left completely unchecked without critical examination. And many of those traditional institutions that were so respected were also often oppressive. Women were often marginalized. The poor were kept in place. Religion was often uh, commanded at the point of a sword. It was often coerced. What we saw in the 1500s and 1600s uh, is a shift, a shift from the pre-modern era to the modern era. We began to see more, uh, the distinctives here would be more of a questioning of traditional religious authorities. Uh, there was a shift in how we thought about truth. Truth became not that which we're told by these institutions, but that which can be logically deduced from what is self-evident. And Rene Descartes would be one of the leading thinkers and figures here, uh, kind of summarized his, his work in that famous quote, I think, therefore I am. Descartes set out on this quest to distinguish reality by rejecting everything he thought he knew from traditional authorities and starting from his individual logical ref- reflections. Descartes reasoned that he could doubt everything he thought he believed to be true, as well as everything he perceived with his senses. But the one thing that he could not doubt, however, was that he was doubting, which meant to him that he was thinking, which meant that, at the very least, he surely existed in some form or another. Hence, I think, therefore, I am. And Descartes really reflected modernism's turn from traditional external institutions to the individual's own reasoning as the ultimate authority. If you've ever wondered about the rise of what we might call now expressive individualism, this is where some of those seeds were planted. Of course, Descartes was not the only figure in what we might think of as as the Enlightenment. Immanuel Kant uh, described modernism as being marked by man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Kant emerged humankind to dare to know, have courage to use their own reason. The ancient sources of wisdom were, were dethroned, and in their place was crowned a new source of ultimate authority, individual reason. At the same time, the scientific method kind of became the defining means of obtaining truth. After an individual carefully analyzed and tested the raw data within a prescribed system, the result was verifiable truth that could be verified by other individuals also analyzing and testing it in the same conditions. And of course, there's much to, again, much to affirm here in in the movement uh, that came with modernism. It led to incredible breakthroughs and innovation. But there were also uh, negatives to this movement. Uh, One was the central concept called deism, this idea that God built a self-sustaining universe and is now largely absent from it. Uh, For many in the Enlightenment, since they could only believe what they could prove, they conceded that there was a God because they needed him to ground their morality, but they they thought that he no longer intervened in life. Miracles could not be proved uh, scientifically, so therefore those had to be thrown out. Uh, Nor could he reveal himself in any particular religion. No Bible or holy book could be proven scientifically to be inspired. And so you can see how it would be a quick jump from there 
uh, to what we now experience in many of our uh, neighbors and friends and coworkers, a quick jump from deism into now atheism. Uh, the payoff of the Enlightenment was a growing confidence in progress, not just scientifically, but ethically and politically. Uh, reason they thought would lead to the end of all of the religious wars uh, of those uh, previous centuries. Of course, the problem was that modernity's efforts to universalize scientific principles and leverage scientific methods and reason to solve life's problems and mysteries proved woefully insufficient. It actually did not lead to the end of the end of wars. Uh, it led to some of the worst the world has ever known, as colonialism. Uh, and World Wars One and Two happened. Those dispelled the notion that we were advancing towards an orderly and peaceful uh, society. So throughout that transition from pre-modern to modernism, again, there was much to affirm, but much that was also not in line with uh, what the Bible teaches us, uh, particularly around issues of God's revelation and God's uh, authority. But Chattrow points out there was a, a second shift. There was a, one shift from the pre-modern to the modern era. But there was also another shift from the modern era to the post-modern era. And here uh, we might think of the shift that took place probably somewhere, if we want to just broadly uh, categorize it, in, in the 1950s as we shifted into the post-modern era, and an era that we still are in today. The distinctives of the postmodern era were, were the intensification of the turn to the individual. That thing that began in the Enlightenment picked up speed in the postmodern era. And of course, today, the self still rules. Also in postmodernism, there was a growing skepticism towards the grand narratives of modernism, particularly this idea of objective facts. All of that uh, about reason and objectivity started to be questioned. At the extreme, postmodernism rejected the Enlightenment search for objective truth. And so Chattrall writes, They, the extreme late moderns, reasoned that since everyone approaches the external world with a preconceived interpretive framework developed from inherited biology and the biases of the social environment, i.e. nature and nurture, then individual perspectives are all that exist. There is no universal truth with a capital T that we can know, we can only know what the truth little t is for ourselves. At worst, this view leads to arbitrary relativism. Truth is totally dependent on the individual person or hopeless skepticism. There, truth just can't be found. One of the benefits that came out of postmodernism, we've been trying to find things to affirm and things to reject in each of these movements. One of the benefits of postmodernism was that it rightly critiqued the modern idea of complete objectivity. This idea that pure reason was going to save us. Even the most ardent, rationalistic atheist is not completely unbiased. There is no view from nowhere. We've all been influenced both by biology and the cultures that we grew up in. The good news is that this movement has actually leveled the playing field for us as Christians. Neither belief in God nor disbelief in God can be proven in a lab. Uh, it's not faith, belief in God versus reason, disbelief in God, but it's about rival types of faith seeking understanding. And we're, we're talking about uh, stories that have equal grounding and are competing with one another. Chachal writes, meta stories can't be absolutely proven, but they can be compared. We can ask which story is most coherent on its own terms. Which story is able to incorporate the insights from other stories in a way that makes sense? Which story is most livable? 
One of the payoffs uh, of this transition is uh, the strange pragmatic contradiction. Our present culture says that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But it also has extraordinarily high moral expectations. Think here of, of cancel culture. Secular people are motivated by strong moral ideals about freedom and altruism and universalism. But without a story that situates these moral ideals in something beyond culture or individual preferences, these absolute ideals are undermined. Okay, so that was a broad sweep of history, and certainly we were painting with some pretty broad uh, historical brushstrokes there. But hopefully that helps you get a sense of how we got to where we are in our postmodern era. And at this point, Chattrow invokes uh, a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who is extremely helpful in helping us think about the worldview that many of our neighbors are living with. He talks about the fact that uh, to really understand the shift from pre-modern to modern to the postmodern era, we have to understand what Charles Taylor calls the rise of the imminent frame. So Chattrow writes, Today the secular narratives teach us to live and operate within the imminent frame, viewing everything in terms of the material world. The modern imagination, which is deeply embedded within our culture, works from the assumption that while people can find significance or meaning in life, imminence, there is no higher divinely given purpose assigned to them, transcendence. A helpful way to understand the imminent frame is to picture a two-story building. Our ancestors lived in a two-story world. Humans inhabited the first floor, but this overlapped with this higher realm on the second floor that they could not see. Theirs was an enchanted world where higher beings were assumed to be active in and relevant to the affairs of everyday life. This higher realm held significance beyond this life while also giving meaning and purpose to our present lives on the first floor. In contrast, we live in a disenchanted one-story world today that denies the existence of the divine. So the moral order of modernism has tried to offer meaning and significance and morality without ultimate transcendent meaning or an ultimate transcendent God. Although some have found the disenchanted new moral order freeing, Chattrall writes, many others have found it uninspiring and lacking fullness and therefore have opted for some type of spirituality, traditional or otherwise. These diverse attitudes have led to what Taylor refers to as the Nova Effect, which describes how even within the imminent frame, there has been a multiplication of a greater and greater variety of different spiritual options. So essentially, using this, this metaphor of the two-story house, our ancestors lived in a two-story one where there was a spiritual realm above our physical realm. And we have closed off that second second floor. We think we live in a closed one-floor uh, house but he says there are cracks that are starting to arise where people are longing for something more than what they see in this one-story house. You can think here of the rise of occultism or astrology, people using the language of manifesting or talking about the universe and what it has for them, all the vague interests in Eastern uh, religions. Essentially, there are cracks in the frame. People are recognizing that something is missing that there has to be more to life than this. So the postmodern uh, or modern story of, of a closed world where there is, there is no higher power, there is no spiritual realm, is deeply unsatisfying to people. They want there to be something more. And as Christians, we are here to say, indeed there is. And this is where we begin to tell our better story. So how do we begin to do that? How do we engage our neighbors who are living in this world, who've been influenced by everything we just talked about, but may not even realize it. 
some of you may be listening uh, to this episode looking for a silver bullet, right? What's the, what's the one trick that's going to help me supercharge my evangelism? And I think we've established here that there's not going to be one. There's not a quick hitter. Uh, we're going to have to engage our neighbors in long-term relationships where we build trust and respectfully engage and listen to them. We're going to have to learn what story they're living out of before we can begin to tell them a better one. And that's actually what we're going to talk about next time, how to talk to our neighbors and start mapping out the stories that they are living out of and start introducing them to our own. But for this episode, I want to end on just a word of encouragement because I know that this may feel uh, discouraging for some of you. This is going to take so much longer than I thought with my friends and neighbors. I thought it would be simple. I thought I could just present them uh, with a few points and and that that would be enough. Uh, But I just want to remind you from Scripture how God likes to work. And to do that, I just want to point us to a story in John chapter 4. It's an interaction that Jesus has with a woman at the well. Uh, Jesus, John tells us, has to go through Samaria, and he has an interaction with a woman who has a notorious background. And what's fascinating about the story is what happens to the woman after she has this interaction with Jesus. She meets Jesus. Uh, They have this fascinating conversation about worship. She comes to realize that he is the Messiah and is converted. And in verses, I just want to look at verses 28 and 29 and then verses 39 through 42 so that we can see what happens to this woman after she begins to live out of the better story that Jesus offers her. So this is John 4, John 4 verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then skipping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. For the woman at the well, she didn't have advanced training. She had just met Jesus. She turned around, and all she had was a story. And she went, and she told it to her neighbors. And because of her story, they came to Jesus and found in him a better story and begin to believe themselves. And so as you go out and begin to talk to coworkers and family members and neighbors about the gospel, be encouraged. God still works through this story. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us again. Mm-hmm.